teachings in this series. And, and in this teaching series, we're really just trying to look at our heritage as people who would call us, call ourselves maybe Protestants or evangelicals. I don't really often refer to myself as a Protestant, but usually that just means you're not a Catholic. If, you know, and uh, it's, it's easier to be against something than it is to be for something. So that term kind of stuck. But actually, if my brother was here, one time when we were discussing, you know, Protestants versus Catholics and all of that, someone called him a Protestant and he said, hey man, what, who are you calling a Protestant? I ain't protesting nothing. <laughs> and so it was, it was kind of funny, but um, anyway, we're covering the five solas of the Reformation and these five statements are really an essential and concise way to explicitly share with someone or to know for yourself, what is the message of the gospel? How do I know that I'm saved? How can I, how can I come to God and uh, uh, in faith, how can, I, how can I turn towards God and pursue a life of righteousness? And that's really what these five solas talk about. Before we talk about the solas, we have to understand the historical context in which the, these things happened, or else we're, it's, I, I, I was trying to think of an analogy, and I didn't come up with a good one, but I think the, the best one I could think of would be, have you ever seen a yacht? There are these, there are these very, very expensive boats, you know, 50 million, and there, there are these boats that normally, because of their size, they shouldn't be able to be seafaring, but these boats go around the world, and they're, they're millions of dollars, and it takes a lifetime to learn how to uh, move one around, and you have to have a whole team, and it's very complicated, but the analogy I came up with was not understanding our history and our, our inheritance as people who've grown up through the Protestant tradition. We, that would be like giving a you know, million-dollar yacht to someone who's never sailed in their life and expecting them to be able to handle it. It just wouldn't, it wouldn't work. They would sink quickly. And so um, I, this morning, I want to give a history of the Protestant Reformation and kind of give a just a very quick and simple way to understand how and why these things came about. Um, before we do that, I just want to explain there's that we basically think there's four great traditions within the church. Um, there's the Eastern Orthodox Church, which many of you might have known as the Greek Church, but it's not just the Greeks, it's the Russians and the Coptics and the Greeks, and they're kind of over on the other side of the planet, and we don't really talk to them much just because they're far away. No, that was supposed to be a joke. I'm not getting my jokes this morning. There's the Greek Orthodox Church, Roman Orthodox Church, Coptic Orthodox, and those form one branch of the church called the Orthodox uh, Church. There's another branch of the church called the Catholic Church. All of us are very familiar with the Catholic Church. They're, they have a a geographic center in, and spiritual center in Rome. And that is, um, you know, many of us grew up Catholic or know someone who was Catholic. I, I went to a Catholic high school. Jason grew up Catholic. Jordan went to that same high school. Actually, Jason, Carla, myself, and Jordan all went to that same high school. And so we, you know, Catholicism has given a lot of great stuff to the body of Christ. And we're going to cover some areas where we think have improved upon those teachings, not really improved upon, but rather gone back to the truth before it went away. We'll cover that. But then there's the Protestant church, which sp split away from the Catholic church. Some of them split away in the 13th century. Some split away in the 16th century. 
And the reason they split away is really the reason why we're going to be giving this message. And then there's the evangelical church. And the evangelical church is a, a, a group of churches, a group of believers who don't identify themselves as Protestants, and they're not Catholics. They mainly have buildings kind of like this with no artwork, and they some of them don't even play music, and it, there's a lot of, evangelicalism is a very, very large uh, branch of the church, but all of them have very good things that we can learn from, and really we're, we're doing this series to combat two things. We're combating the lack of authentic preaching of the, of the message of the gospel in the church, and we're also trying to do trying to remember our heritage. But the way in which you make progress in your walk with the Lord is by revisiting your foundations. And this is this is so important to us that without understanding why these things happened, how the Lord made a uh, uh, allowed a few group of uh, or a, a group of individuals to rediscover the the truths found in the scriptures, unless we remember why it means something, we won't treat it with any value. Um, you know, if you if you have no understanding of the family business and mom and dad give you the family business when you, you know, there's, there's an inheritance that is passed over. And if we don't understand what we've been given in our inheritance as Protestants, then we really will, first of all, we won't know who we are and we'll be searching for an identity, a cultural identity. And also we won't know what the message of the gospel is. And that's the, the greatest tragedy. And so it's important for us to understand what has, has happened in the Protestant Reformation. These are the five solas, and it's very, very artsy screen here. Um, basically says sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, and soli deo gloria. And I can't pronounce Latin, so I did a terrible job with that. But the, these things mean simply we're saved by grace alone, which means it's the free gift of God. We're saved by faith alone. We trust in Jesus. It's not as a result of things that we can do to better ourselves to get to God. Solus Christus means through Christ alone. We're only saved based on the work that he did, and it's only by being in him that we're spared. Sola Scriptura means the only way that we can form our faith is interpreting based on the scripture. And uh, Sola Deo Gloria, which means to God alone is the glory. As the reason we're saved, the reason this whole thing of Christianity is going on on the earth is to bring glory to God. We're not even saved mainly for our own personal benefit. We're actually saved to be, the scriptures teach that we'll be an eternal testimony to the mercies of God in, in the next age. And in heaven, we'll be constantly praising and, and seeing his glory and giving him glory and worshiping. And so these are the five solas of the Reformation. But so what's the Reformation? You know, I can't assume that you know what the Reformation is because um, I didn't know what the Reformation was for a long part of my life. And I didn't really understand what it was and why it was important. And there, because of all of the things that have happened, in no way could I give you a concise or even clear history of the church over a period of 1600 years. So we're gonna cover the first 300 or 600 years, and then we're gonna jump a thousand years. And you're just gonna have to give me grace there, and we know that we're gonna miss some stuff. But my main objective this morning is to show you that in an extremely dark circumstances, 
the Lord is faithful to lead his church. And in, in the midst of what happened in the 13th and 16th centuries the, in that time frame, there was an increasing darkness and loss of the truth of the gospel. And even in the darkest times, the Lord is faithful to restore his church back to himself and back to orthodoxy, that is, back to what the church has always believed. So to get where we're going, we have to start at the beginning. And we all remember that Jesus, in the book of Acts, he departs, he leaves his disciples, the Holy Spirit comes, the, the, the tongues of fire, as it were, falls on each person. They're speaking with other tongues. Peter stands up and gives the bold proclamation of the gospel in Jerusalem. And then from that day, the church saw great glory, a great moving of the Holy Spirit, great unity in the, in the people, and, and a message of the gospel that was a full message of the gospel. Peter commanded them to repent. That means to turn away from sin and to believe. Repentance from sin, faith towards God. And so the message of the gospel spread like wildfire. In fact, actually most of the 12 apostles, they actually made it to very, very distant locations. Paul, who wasn't in the original 12, made it all the way to Rome. Some church traditions maintain that he didn't die first in Rome when he visited Rome, but made it all the way to Spain and then came back and was killed in the time that he came back. It's not proven that he went, but other... Other of the apostles made it just as far. Andrew made it to places like Romania and the Ukraine, what's present-day Ukraine. In fact, a lot of those countries up in northern Europe have an X-shaped cross because when he died, when Andrew was being put to death, he didn't want to die on the same size and shape of cross that Jesus died on. He, he said he was unworthy. And so he died on an X-shaped cross, and that's why some of those countries, instead of like the UK and Australia and other countries have straight crosses, and those countries where Andrew had made it to with the gospel in in his lifetime, uh, they actually have that X-shaped cross to honor him on their flag and in their symbol. And if you if you know where if you know anything about about geography, which we'll cover in just a second, that that's a long distance. Uh, other other apostles made it further. Thomas and Bartholomew have made it all the way to India. Now they didn't walk there; they actually sailed, so they didn't spread the gospel all the way while they were going there. But they made it to India in, in their in their lifetime. Those who had seen Jesus went and planted the gospel in further away places. James the Lesser, who's not James, the brother of John, it's a different James. He made it to Egypt. That's a, a dangerous place to go if you're an Israelite uh, or a Jew. And he, he made it there and in his lifetime. But slowly over time, and this is where we have to be quick for time, is the church eventually fell away from unity and the church fell away from power of the Holy Spirit, even though up until the third and fourth and fifth centuries, church historians tell us that the same miracles that the original apostles did and that Jesus did were done at the hands of the of the believers and in fact there's one case where someone's talking about whether or not there are demons or evil spirits and he basically said if that person who calls themselves a Christian can't cast out a demon you should put that person to death thank god we don't live in that time but he was i don't know if he was kidding but but um, that, was, that was the level of authenticity that, w- that accompanied the first church, the early church. 
And that faith and that, that, that uh, dramatic moving of the Holy Spirit dwindled over time because of sin and because of a lot of different issues, a lot of people breaking fellowship with each other, and the Lord wants unity. And so in that place, even though we're looking at these things, we have to remember that we still love our Roman Catholic brothers and where, where we can find some sort of unity with them. We will find unity, but we, there's a lot of areas where we can't, but we still want to honor the tradition and we want to not be, I mean, I'd rather, I'd rather have somebody who's on my team and who can preach some good things than, you know, just say, it's just me and it's just my faith and I don't, you know, I interpret things how I want to interpret them in light of the way the church has always interpreted things. I want to, I want to make uh, an effort to keep the unity of the faith, as the scriptures say. And so where we can have unity, we want to. And the Protestant Reformation basically is a splitting away from the Roman Catholic Church where they felt they couldn't have unity anymore. But here, here's a map of where, the, the, where Christianity, the light blue, is where Christianity had spread to by the third century. And this is only a map of Europe. Remember, it, it got a start over in India. And in this, in this map, this doesn't mean that everyone in those dots was Christian. This means that Christianity had an authentic witness of the gospel by the third century. And then the dark blue is the sixth century. So there were little pockets of resistance. And um, those pockets of resistance down there in Spain, you can see that those were where the Moors were. And they, you know, eventually in, embraced Islam. And that there's a whole lot of stuff. And but by the 6th century, Europe was fully Christianized. That, it, that is, there was, there was a representative of the gospel in almost every area. But eventually, a lust for power and a lust for wealth took over. People who were put into leadership positions in the church, who were not really, it's questionable if they were even converted or true Christians. And this is where this, this extremely brief history becomes extremely brief. We're about to jump a thousand years. So, are you ready? Here we go. Time warp. There began to evolve some extra biblical doctrines which the, which the Protestant Reformation had to break away from. And one of the first doctrines that existed somewhat in, in kind of an incubated phase uh, during the 5th century and 6th century that got full, got, you know, became a full, complete, separate taught on doctrine that was considered by them to be very important was the doctrine of purgatory. And purgatory is basically this. It's a place where the souls of the faithful, that is Christians, those who attend church, those who have, have faith, the, the, the faithful who want, you know, they're, they're going to churches and they want to, to visit God. They want to be with God. They want to be his people. A place where the souls of the faithful are purified by fire undergoing a temporary punishment before being allowed to enter into heaven. There's a few passages in scripture that extrapolated over time were morphed into this idea that after you die, even if you believe that Jesus died for you and have repented from your sin, even after that, because of the sins that you've done, you encounter punishment by fire, literal fire. It's an in-between place between heaven and hell. And you make your way through purgatory and you eventually are righteous enough to get into heaven. And so this is, 
as you can see, what we believe in and has no place for a doctrine of purgatory to come in into. And so, you know, this is this causes some some trouble for us. Another doctrine was this idea of indulgences. Now, indulgences didn't start out as what what they became. They actually at first were a way for someone who's committed a sin, let's say I've stolen your car and I burned it and I got it in a wreck. Well, by buying an indulgence, my punishment for that, the physical earthly punishment could be uh, shortened by me buying an indulgence from the church or doing some other good work. Uh, whether I'm purchasing it with money or doing some other good work, I could make payment on my penalty time and lessen it. And that doctrine, which was originally just something that the church had amongst itself to kind of allow people who were repentant to be restored back to grace in a community setting, eventually was morphed and warped into this doctrine that you could actually pay for sins uh, to be the punishment for sins in purgatory to be lessened. And so, you know, obviously these things didn't emerge overnight. They, it took a while for them to get there. There's a few reasons why they came about. But this other, this other doctrine was salvation by works, and this is the main split. This, is, this was what caused the main split between the Protestants and the Catholics, was how are we saved? Are we saved by faith alone in Jesus' work, or are we saved by faith in Jesus' work plus our good efforts? And so they, they would teach that faith plus good works equals salvation. And we would say that faith equals salvation and then there's good works that result from that faith. But the indulgences got so bad that there was actually a phrase that was attributed to one of their main sellers of indulgences. I'm sure we're all familiar with it a little bit, but as soon, you know, as, soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. This idea was that if you had if you had a parent or an uncle or a baby who died or or a sibling who died, they were in purgatory and they were suffering under hellfire, but they weren't in hell and they weren't going to stay there forever. And they were eventually going to make it into heaven. And by giving money to the church, you could get them out of there. You could spring them into heaven. And that that really was what the final abuse came, became which caused and, and finally dro- drove out the Reformation. Indulgences were, were a pretty um, intense thing. Basically, uh, they, they became extremely, um, extremely twisted and used to the advantage of the, of the church. And I have this quote from Dr. C. Matthew McMahon, who wrote in a a history of the Reformation in the 16th century. He says, the works of bygone saints, even the supererogatory merits of Jesus Christ, that just means that the work of Jesus on the cross was more than enough to accomplish our our, uh, forgiveness. These merits could be bought for a price in order to secure the salvation of the buyer or aid in the release of those already captive to the purging of sin in purgatory. Financial advantage to the Roman church did not go unnoticed, and purgatory became one of the chief doctrines to validate indulgences in the 13th century and to furnish the livelihood of the Pope. This is, this is what was going on. Spiritually earnest people, they were told to justify themselves by charitable works, by making pilgrimage 
pilgrimages to different places to see the bones of saints and things like that. In no way do we dishonor the apostles or anything like that, but we believe very strongly that you don't have to go and touch the bones of John the Baptist or the nails from the cross to enter into faith and righteousness towards God. The message of the good news is that Jesus made atonement for our sins and that by trusting in his work, we are restored to good good place with God. So this became a, 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 bad, a bad thing. The, they were told, these people were told that they had to go and do these things to acquire merit. That is, merit was this idea of you've got this little box and if it's got enough gold coins this, in the spirit, you've got this little box and in the spirit, if you've got enough gold coins and your, enough merit in your treasury that you can be extended life. In, in, the, in, the next, uh, in the afterlife or in the next stage. So how do you know if you've got enough coins in your box? This is, a, this is a terrible state for someone who has weak faith or is just you know trying to get free from the clutches of sin or whatever. How do I know if I've done enough good things? This eventually in the heart of, of someone who believes this, this becomes a, I've got to strive to meet God. I have to pray more. I have to read my Bible more. I have to earn my salvation. And in this, in this place, the reformers, some of, them saw, some of them who went through personal struggles with how, how do I know who God is? What's the message of the gospel? They used these, these things to find freedom. By, seeing, by knowing that there was no light in them, they saw the light in the message of the gospel through the scriptures. But it got worse than just indulgences. Erasmus was a historian in Switzerland in the 16th century. And I have another quote from Dr. C. Matthew McMahon in the same book in a different place, A History of the Reformation in the 16th Century. It says, Erasmus relates the disposition of the clergy in relation to propagating sexual sin. In one year, 11,000 priests presented themselves before him in order to partake in the regular tax they could pay to the church for sleeping with a woman. They also paid this tax for any children they may have had as a result of the union while simultaneously abiding by their vow of celibacy. The priests in that time had, and still to this day, had to take a vow of celibacy where they weren't allowed to marry anyone, even if they wanted, you know, if they wanted to be what we would call a pastor, they weren't allowed to marry anyone. Such an intricate web of corruption sustained these acts of immorality since Christ was portrayed by the priest as a cruel judge ready to condemn all to hell unless they partook of indulgences and penance. So how did we get here from the scriptures? If you read the scriptures and then you look at what they believed, how did we get here? Well, there were some there were some key reasons why we got here over the centuries. There was this doctrine of papal infallibility. That is, the Bishop of Rome is called the Pope. And they believe that this person, the Pope, that no matter whatever he is saying, he cannot err. As in, in he, cannot make, he cannot say anything that's wrong when he's teaching the church. So that means that he's without the ability to it says that he is spared from the possibility of making an error. So whatever the Pope was saying, Jesus is saying. And whatever Jesus would want to say to the church, the Pope does say. As in, if God has any message for the church, the way that he's going to do it is he's going to speak through the Pope. 
And this doctrine is similarly tied to, but not identical to, but it's very, very, very close to this idea of the vicar of Christ. What that means is that Jesus is not here on earth and he left a particular person, namely Peter, in charge and Peter handed the baton down to other people. So the Pope is seen as, the Pope is seen as only, the, the only representative of Jesus on this planet. And so this, whatever he says goes, <clears throat> it, it can get out of hand. Now this doctrine was only officially codified and ratified in the, in the 1870s but that doctrine was always present after about the sixth century. It's hard to tell exactly where it begins to come in because those things aren't just written down, you know, and today the church began to drift away. You know, a historian would never write that down. But so this idea that whatever the Pope says goes leaves us in a dark spot. What if the, what if the Pope says something that contradicts the scriptures. How are we to reconcile the, the two? Well, they, they basically maintain that scripture, tradition, and what they call the magisterium forms one complete composite of revelation from God. And so this idea is the sacred scripture is the, the 66 books of the Bible. We, we share the same 66 books. They also have some other books that are called the Apocrypha, which the church always from early on never saw as actual scripture, but just other good writings that were, you know, that could be beneficial. But sacred tradition is this idea of the practice of the faith in the clergy. That is, the scriptures alone are not uh, enough to, to form a deposit of divine revelation. It also takes the scriptures and the practice of the faith of the leaders of the church. And then there's this idea of the sacred magisterium that the, the task, according to the catechism of the Catholic Church, the task of interpreting the word of God authentically has been entrusted solely to the magisterium of the church, that is to the Pope and to the bishops in communion with him. What they're saying is that the Orthodox Church in the East, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Greeks, the Russians, they can't interpret the scripture accurately, only the Pope can. And so this began to be uh, worked in in a greater way. You you can see how if if you elect bishops who are not accurate believers, even if you elected bishops who were believers, that this allows the uh, some error to come into to doctrine. At at the time, they were selling places of office in the church to people for based on you know whether or not you were the son of a duke or a prince and you if you were the nephew you could be handed a you know special little uh piece of land over which you could exercise authority and so the there were these people who had lust for power who were put into positions in the church and if the church if these people are the ones who determine the interpretation of the word of god then obviously we can see where error is coming in. Pope Paul VI, in November of 1965, explains very well what they teach. It is clear, therefore, that sacred tradition, sacred scripture, and the teaching authority of the church, in accord, in accord with God's most wise design, are so linked and joined together that one cannot stand without the others. And that altogether, and each in his own way, under the action of the, Holy, of the one Holy Spirit, contribute effectively to the salvation of souls. So this is saying that 
the the teaching practice of the church, the life of the faith in the church and scripture are both the way that God teaches his people and are integral to the salvation of, of, of humans. That is faith. And so this is a markedly different thing than what we believe, although there's some commonality. And so in this environment, the Reformation was birthed by a number of different people, one of which that we'll focus on in the next teaching named Martin Luther. But he wasn't the only one. There were a number of others who began to fight for more freedom. And there's, there's actually the message of the gospel in the happening of the Reformation. That's what I'd like to convince you of this morning, that as we study, the reason why we want to study these things is that God is faithful to his bride. Jesus is faithful to his bride, and he is purifying her, and he will not let her go astray forever. We've got a situation in which there's non-converted leaders who are perverting the message of the gospel into a message of fear and salvation by, wor- by works alone. And these leaders live in, in sin, and they have set up systems for compromise. The words of scripture are only written in a language in which the people of the day can't read or know. And their leaders are not just teaching the scriptures, but they've added things to it. Worse than that, the leadership of the church being corrupt, even if they were corrupt, they weren't preaching the message of the gospel. There's a time where Paul has some adversaries and who are preaching out of jealousy, trying to win more converts than Paul. And he says, it doesn't matter to me because they're preaching Christ. Well, in this situation, it mattered to some people because they weren't preaching Christ. So they were taught that the buying of pieces of paper which said forgiveness were of equal value or greater value to the work of Jesus on the cross. And that should be very alarming to us and it was for them. Matthew 16, 15 through 18. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. When he says, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock, there's a play on words there. Peter, in, in that language, was the word petros, and that means a, a small stone. And in the original language, he says petros and then petra, you're Peter, and upon this other rock, well, what's this other rock that he's talking about? He's talking about the revelation that Jesus is the Christ. The Christ means he's the Messiah. That means he's the anointed one. You know, in the matrix, how they have the idea of the one, Neo's the one in the matrix. That's, that's a type of, of Jesus. I mean, Neo's not Jesus, but he's, you know, Neo is the one. Jesus, he's saying, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. You're the, you are the one guy who is here to save your people from their sins and from, from going off into bondage, into slavery of sin. And, and this, you, you're the guy. And Peter has this revelation. And Jesus says, upon this revelation, that Jesus is the one who is necessary, upon that revelation, I build the church. When you move that foundation away, the church does not get built and does not move forward. 
John the Baptist said, considering his revelation of who Jesus was, he says, when, when John the Baptist finally sees Jesus, he makes the public declaration, there's, there's Jesus, and he says, the, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He doesn't just take away the sins of the world and then you have to go to mass or prayer or confession to get clean. He says he takes away the sins of the world. That's the same revelation that Jesus is the anointed one and that, that John the Baptist had that he's the lamb of God. He's the sacrifice. He is the one sufficient sacrifice for us. And by faith in him and in his work, we're, we're saved Deuteronomy 7, 9, know that the Lord, your God, he is God and the faithful God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousand generations to those who, with those who love him and keep his commandments. What, the reason I have this verse is because I got to add some scripture to make this preach legal. But I also want to explain that God will not leave his church, his true church in error forever. Even though in the West we see the church falling from positions of authority and positions of prominence in our culture, the Lord is at work doing a mighty restoration. And he is restoring the gifts of the Holy Spirit as well as the Reformed doctrines to a very prominent place, especially in a lot of the young men that I run with. And we're just, we're just all amazed at all these guys who used to be Reformed or Charismatic who are now Reformed and Charismatic. And it's beautiful. And we just are convinced that the Lord does not want to leave the church in the West in error forever. And one of the ways that he helped us out in the 16th century was the Reformation. And we need to continue in that. And we need to understand why it's valuable. So I got to preach the gospel to you if I'm going to tell you what that the gospel is uh, being restored. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 5. Paul said to the Corinthians, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which you also receive, in which you also stand. Let's pause right there for a second. He says, The gospel which I preach to you, so Paul said it to them, they received it, they understood what it meant, and they started living in it. And then he says, In which you stand. A lot of us, when we would, you know, come into either a Pentecostal church or charismatic kind of church, we hear a lot about spiritual disciplines and making progress in God. Well, the way that you make progress in your faith is by constantly revisiting the message of the gospel. You do that through reading the word and prayer and meditation, but you don't do it by those spiritual disciplines in order, in order to earn more grace of God. You do it by seeing the grace that was displayed on the cross. He says, by which you are saved... If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you had believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve. Romans 10, 8 through 12. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him 
will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. If you were listening and I talked about the treasury of merit, how we're saved by faith, there's a really good reason why I chose this passage. It says, for, the, for with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. You can make a claim to believe in God, and if your life doesn't make any sort of change after you begin to trust Jesus for your salvation, then that faith that you've got, that was given to you by God, that, that faith that you claim to have, if it doesn't result in righteousness, it's not authentic faith. I'm not saying that you just need to mouth the words, Jesus is Lord. Although I'm not sure if you can, unless you've got the Holy Spirit. What I am saying is that if you trust in your heart, if you can see Christ, if you can look upon the cross and trust and believe that he has already completed payment for your sins, if you can do that, then you've been given that ability by God. It says that we've been saved by grace through faith. Your faith saves you, but that faith wasn't yours. It was given to you by God. If you never respond in faith to the gospel, you won't be saved. If you do respond in faith, you respond in faith because God gave you the ability to respond. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. You don't have to do righteousness to get saved. Righteousness just happens. You know, it doesn't, you don't, you shouldn't ever think after you've, you know, if, if you've come to hear the message of the gospel and, and you start having problems with little sins, you know, it, it can be a very discouraging thing to doubt your assurance. And your sins cannot, if you have authentic saving faith, your works not, did not get you that faith and your works cannot take away that faith if you've been saved. So anyway, Father, we thank you for your word. We ask God that you would help us understand that we don't, we do not come to you on our own. You came for us. You sent your son, Jesus, to come and live a perfect life, completing the law fully, always obeying your word, always doing what you, Father, had asked him to do. Father, we believe that your word plainly teaches that those who trust upon Jesus to save them will be saved, that if they, can, if they can see Christ and claim him as their own, if they can see him and treasure him and value him, that they'll be saved. Lord, we ask you that you would help us see that when we see that Jesus said it is finished, when we rest in that, that righteousness comes. Lord, I just ask you that you would help those of us in this room who are struggling with assurance of their salvation, that you would help them see that you love them, that you call them to forsake their sin, and you love them enough to deliver them. Your word says, Father, that faithful is he who called you, and he will do it. God, you will complete this salvation in us. We ask you, Lord, as we continue this series, that we would be able to treasure the gospel, that we would value Jesus more and more, and that that would become for us a source of unending worship and appreciation for you and your word and your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.